All right, North Point. Hey, I can distinctly remember uh, my third grade teacher, Mrs. Harmon, holding all of us third graders back from recess, which is a major no-no in third grade land, right? But she held all of us back from recess for a few minutes because she wanted to give us a stern warning. And so she set us down and she said, hey, class, I want you guys to know that there's been some construction on the baseball field. And so over by the swing set, you will see a giant dirt mound. Oh, yeah. Okay. And here's the thing, class. Uh, none of you kids are allowed to play on or climb that mound. In fact, if we find any of you guys climbing on that, you will miss recess for the rest of the week. <gasps> Gasp. Right? So Mrs. Harmon tried her best, but no matter how stern her warning was, the moment we stepped outside and we saw this beautiful mountain of earth rising high above the swing set, it was like Black Friday at Walmart, but with elementary age students, right? Like just taking off towards this thing. And I distinctly remember, I don't know who he was, but this one little boy getting to the top of the mountain in victory before all the other little kids. And he held his hands up high and he yelled, I'm king of the mountain! And was then pushed in the back and came tumbling down that mountain as well, right? And there was something about just climbing and playing king of the mountain as a kid that was just incredible, right? Like you got to be king. You got to see who was the biggest, who was the baddest, who was the best. And what we found out during the rest of that week was that Mrs. Harmon was king of that mountain as we sat along the fence and watched all the other kids get to enjoy recess, right? But there's something about being king of the mountain. There's something about being on top, being the best, being the most powerful. That just, man, it drives us. It's encouraging. It's just something we really want, something we, we go after. We're in the middle of, as Chris said, this series on mountains, where we're taking three weeks to look at three different events in the Bible that all took place on mountains. And what we see in all of these mountain events is that the power of God is revealed on these mountains. And we look at the effect that the power of God had on those who were able to witness and be a part of these things. And then what does it matter to us and how it applies to us? As Chris said last week, we talked about uh, Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah and how we saw that even when God asks us to do something that seems to defy all logic whatsoever, that God is powerful enough to provide a way for that to be accomplished. So if you missed that, as Chris said, check out uh, online or the North Point app. It's really encouraging stuff as we go there. Uh, but today, we are going to jump a little bit forward from the book of Genesis in the first Kings chapter 18. So if you have your Bible, feel free to pop that open. If you have the North Point app, you can follow along on the uh, this week's talk tab as well. Uh, but we're going to jump on a First Kings chapter 18. But before we start into that, man, I want to give you some background information so that you kind of understand what's going on. Kind of paint a little picture for you here. Uh, what happens here in First Kings 18 is actually 100 years after the reign of King David. Uh, king David was king of the nation of Israel, God's established people. He was one of the best kings, one of the favorite kings of Israel, but he has died. And so they have a new king. Kings that have come along, and what happened is the nation of Israel has been split into two kingdoms, uh, the northern and the southern, or Israel and Judah, and so there are now two kings in these different areas, and what we're going to focus on today is actually the split kingdom of Israel with a guy named King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. 
Now, King Ahab and Jezebel are just the worst, okay? Like when we read the Bible, the Bible tells us that there, all of the kings before Ahab combined were nowhere near as bad as Ahab himself was. And the reason Ahab is so bad and what it all started with is that Ahab, when he married Jezebel, she was a foreign princess and so she brought foreign gods into their relationship. And so what they did is they took the one true God and kind of kicked him to the side and said, hey, you know what? We are actually going to worship the gods of Asherah and Baal. Like these are going to be our gods. And they led all the entire nation astray. In fact, Jezebel wanted only these gods to be worshipped. And so she actually went all throughout the land of Israel looking for prophets of the one true God. And prophets were those that acted as uh, the voice of God to the people and especially to the king. And so she went hunting prophets all throughout the land of Israel, killing all that she came into contact with. But one particular prophet got away. One prophet she did not catch, and that was a guy named Elijah. Elijah. And Elijah is a really important, really cool person in the Bible. In fact, his name literally means the Lord is God. Super cool. In fact, in the Bible, when we read names, it actually tells us something about that person. It tells us the calling they may have on their life or or what's going to kind of happen. It's a little bit of foreshadowing into their story. And so the fact that there's a prophet named the Lord is God is really a big deal. And so God tells Elijah, hey, go to King Ahab and deliver this message for me. Go tell him that there will be a drought on the land for years to come. So Elijah's obedient. He does this. As you can imagine, Ahab is not thrilled with this. So God then tells Elijah, hey, just go in hiding for a little while. Go down to a place I'm going to show you and I'm going to take care of you. So God sends Elijah down next to this brook to live. And he gets to drink water out of this brook. And then every morning and every evening, ravens would bring Elijah food to eat. It's like Uber Eats with birds, okay? Like, super cool. Could you imagine, like, flying Taco Bell coming your way? Like, how cool is that? Probably not KFC because, like, right? It's a little weird bird-on-bird stuff, right? But there was something about how cool this was. And so he hung out there for a little while until eventually they're in a drought. So the brook dries up. And God says, hey, here's what I want you to do, Elijah. I want you to go to this house where there's this widow and her son, and they're going to take care of you. And if you read all the things that happened right before this that we're going to jump into, uh, God provides for this family in incredible ways. They never go hungry. They never go thirsty. In fact, God even uses Elijah to raise her child up from the dead. So like incredible ways that God has taken care of Elijah in the midst of what has become just pain and poverty throughout the rest of the land. And so God shows up here again in 1 Kings chapter 18 to Elijah. That's where we're going to jump in the first two verses. It says this. It says, after a long time in the third year, meaning the third year of the drought, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go, present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So so Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. To Ahab. God shows up to Elijah again and he says, All right, man, it's time. It's time for us to confront Ahab while we're in this third year of the drought and everybody's going crazy and things are getting really, really bad. This is where I'm sending you out again, Elijah. And what's incredible about this is we are just starting this story and we already know how it ends. We already know how it ends that God is going to send rain and get rid of this drought. What we don't know and what the really cool part of all this is, is how is God going to do it? Who is God going to use? And how is the power of God going to be revealed in this moment? 
So jump down with me to verse 9 here, and we find that Elijah is going to go confront Ahab. And so he meets with one of the men from the king's court named Obadiah. And he tells Obadiah to let Ahab know, hey, Elijah, I'm back. Go get, go get Ahab for me, and we're going to work this thing out. We're going to talk here. And Obadiah is just not sure about it. Look what he says in verse 9. What have I done wrong, asked Obadiah, that you are handing your servant over to Ahab to be put to death? As surely as the Lord lives, there is not a nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to look for you. And they could not find you. And whatever a nation or kingdom claimed that you were not there, he made them swear that they could not find you. But now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here. I don't know where the spirit of the Lord may carry you when I leave. If I go and tell Ahab and he doesn't find you, he will kill me. Yet I, your servant, have worshipped the Lord since my youth. Haven't you heard, my Lord, what I did while Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord? I hid a hundred of the Lord's prophets in two caves, fifty in each, and supplied them with food and water. And now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here. He will kill me. Elijah said, as the Lord Almighty lives whom I serve, I will surely present myself to Ahab today. So Elijah goes up to Obadiah and says, hey, let Ahab know that I'm here. And Obadiah is freaked out, rightfully so, because he knows how wicked Ahab is here. And Obadiah is this good guy. Like he hid some of the prophets from Jezebel. He's taking care of, of all these things. He's trying to serve God. And yet he is fearful for his life. And Elijah tries to tell him, hey, it's going to work out. God is still in control. He sent me. This is all going to be good. But I love Obadiah's reaction because it is so honest. Like, it is so real. Obadiah just looks at him and goes, come on. Haven't I done enough, God? Like, I've already served you over here. I've done some of these things. Do you recognize, like, you want more out of me? You know this is going to cost me, right? Like, this is not going to be easy I just did all these things, put my life over here, I gave up stuff, and yet you want more? Like, come on, my life is on the line here, and yet Elijah reassures him, it's going to be okay. In fact, the entire story might end right here if Obadiah just decided, you know what, I have done enough. No more, I've done my part, I'm out. But that's not what Obadiah decides to do. Instead, he goes on, and so we go on. Verse 16. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. And when he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? Troubler, here he comes, right? This guy over here. Everything was all great, Elijah. You showed up at my door and said a drought's coming and poof, right? So now what? What else you got for me? Fire coming on its way? I mean, what, what are we doing, Elijah? Everything's great. I loved how things were going. And you're ruining it, man. You troubler of Israel. It's all your fault. Ahab doesn't even recognize the role that he plays in this. Ahab has no clue that Israel is going through a drought because of him. So Elijah tells him, Verse 18, I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. 
Now, summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who ate at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. All right, mountain climbers, welcome to Mount Carmel this morning. I love this. Elijah is pointing out to Ahab that it's him and his family, the guys that are in charge, the leadership here that are responsible for this drought. They are the ones responsible for the suffering that is occurring throughout the entire land because they are the ones that have led the people in turning away from the one true God. If you have your Bible, you may see when it says in these passages, the Lord, it may be in all caps in some of your versions. And the reason it's in all caps here is because that is uh, in the Hebrew for the, the, the right name of God, the proper name of God that is to be uh, interpreted as Yahweh, Yahweh in this time. And so what, what Elijah is saying is, hey, you know what? Go get 450 of your prophets. Your guys, all your Baal worshipers, bring them up here. You know what? While you're at it, why don't your wife, you know your wife, the one that killed all God's prophets? Yeah, have her bring her people along too. And then you know what? While you're there, get everybody from the entire nation of Israel to come on up here to Mount Carmel because we are throwing down, okay? Like pay-per-view would have loved this moment. All right, do I got any WWE fans in here, Okay. Like, this is like WWE Smackdown Prophet versus Prophet edition right here, okay? This is big news. This is Yahweh versus Baal on Sunday, 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 right? Like, this is huge. Everybody is coming to see what is going down, to see Baal take on Yahweh. And when everybody shows up, Elijah gathers the people together and he addresses them in verse 21. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Here's the reason for the showdown. Elijah lets them know, how long will you waver between two opinions? The actual translation, if we were to break it down here, the term is limping between two opinions. How long will you limp between two opinions? Israel has been trying to get the best of both worlds for a long time now. They want Yahweh here and they want Baal here. That Yahweh is the one that established them, that promised them, that cared for them and provided for them. But really, it just wasn't enough for them. And because of that, things have have gotten tough, and they're in a drought. Baal, on the other hand, is a generic term. It means Lord. And if we were to look back in the history of finding out who was this Phoenician god, we find out that it was, in fact, the false god Baal Hadad. This was the storm god. And that according to myth, his weapons were lightning and thunder. This is a bad mamma jamma right here. All right? And that what he would do is he was the one that brought the rain He made it rain. He made it storm. He brought it all down. In fact, if you were an agrarian culture like these guys, mainly farmers, you really wanted to have Baal on your team, especially during a drought. For Israel, Yahweh just wasn't working out the way that they wanted him to or in the time frame that they wanted him to. So instead, they clung even harder to somebody or to something else 
to get their answer. And so Elijah is asking them, who is it going to be? Guys, you can't have both. In fact, if we jump in the New Testament, Jesus is on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. He puts it this way. He says, you can't serve two masters. You have to love one and hate the other. Now, in Jesus' message, he's talking about money. He's talking about creating security on our own in our own lives. And if we're honest with each other, man, we are just like these people. That God is really, really good when things are good. But when things turn a little sour and get a little more difficult or uncomfortable, man, we start looking for new answers. There's got to be a better way. There's got to be another way to do these kinds of things. We do what they did and we begin to look at idols as well. Man, money gets tight. It's easier not to do that tithing or that offering. You get scared about the future. What are things going to look like? Am I going to be able to do the things that I want to do in the future? And so, man, we just work harder. We push harder. We climb up that ladder. We don't give sacrificially anymore. We got to save because you never know. Or we do what I like to call the Insta family or the Instagram family. That's where there is not an ugly picture of us or our family on social media anywhere. Because the world needs to know how together we act like we have it. Okay? And so we worship the idol of public opinion. Or instead we'll worship the idol of social status where, man, our family is a part of every club, every team, every committee. We are a part of every board known to man. Why? Because we got to be busy so people know how important we are. Because the more we do, the more we're a part of it, and then people will know how special we are, how, how important we are. And, and then we got to get to that nicer house or that nicer car because we worship other people's perceptions of who we are. Now, these things in and of themselves are not bad. Money is not bad. A picture on social media is not bad. Playing a sport is not bad. Being on a board or whatever, like these things are not bad. But when they are more important to us than God, or when we begin to sacrifice for these things more than we would ever imagine sacrificing for our relationship with God, when making practice is more important than worshiping together, when it becomes more important uh, to be a part of different things than it is to be a part of life group or, or to build our business than it is to be using our talents and gifts for what God has put into our lives, when those things become more important than worshiping for God, then it's worshiping the idol and not the true God. And so Isaiah said it this way. He said, man, Israel, how long will you limp between two opinions? In other words, does God have everything that you do? Does everything that you have, does everything that you desire, does everything that motivates, points you to God? Or is it something else? Because Israel, it is time to choose who is king of your mountain. Verse 22 then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and cut it into pieces and, and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I'll prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. 
Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them, and they prepared it. Elijah is pointing out that he and God here are both completely outmanned and disadvantaged in this situation. That it is 450 prophets versus one prophet. That their God is the God of lightning. If you're going to send fire down, lightning is a pretty good way to do it. In fact, the sacrifice that they're making a bull, if you looked at the idol of Baal here, it's a bull. Like, it's even, it's a replica of their God. All of this. And they get to go first. They get to make the best choice. They get to do everything here. They're completely out man. They have all the disadvantages. But the truth is, God works powerfully at a disadvantage. That if we read some of the events before this, God raised up a leader named Gideon and 300 men to take on a horde of their enemies. A number so big, they didn't even count it. They just said, that's a horde of people. That's a lot of people over there. That he took a nation of slaves and had them escape and run and get out of an entire empire of Egypt at the time. That he raised up a young shepherd boy to defeat the biggest, baddest, most skilled warrior of the time. That there is no disadvantage when God is on your side. That God thrives in these disadvantages because he reveals himself. He reveals his power in overcoming these disadvantages. Nevertheless, it is time to settle who is it here that is worthy to be worshipped and worthy to be served. Look at the second part of verse 26. It says, then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. See, the word they used here that is translated for dancing for us, if we break it down, the Hebrew is actually the same word that Isaiah used earlier when he said, how long will you limp between two opinions? That it's no coincidence that the author here has used the same word. In fact, it's not really even used anywhere else except right here. And it's the reason he's doing this is it's used to show the weakness of putting your trust in any other God besides Yahweh, the one true God. Now keep in mind, they're in the middle of a drought here. People are desperate. Their livelihood, their lives, their military, everything is beginning to fall apart around them. Surely the storm God is going to show up. Surely he's got the power and ability to defeat and make everything right. We've just got to worship harder. We've got to pour more into him. He's going to fix this. He can do all of this. But there's no answer because a God that doesn't exist cannot meet your needs. And in the same way, the gods of money, status, fame, achievement, or admiration don't exist and can't meet our needs either. Verse 27 says, at noon, oh, this is so good, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought, or busy, or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears as was their custom until their blood flowed. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered and no one paid attention. I love this part. 
Because I just picture Elijah pulling up and like tossing open the lawn chair, putting the cooler down, laying back all day, and just heckling like crazy. Right? Like if your kids play t-ball, Elijah is that annoying dad at the t-ball games, right? Like we all know who that guy is and the things that he's yelling. That is my man, Elijah. And it does not do justice to the amount of trash talk he's got going on here. Like we don't have English for this, but it is incredible the things that he is doing here. When he references sleep, he's actually talking about the myth that Baal Hadad was a God that died and was brought back to life. And so he's saying, hey, maybe he died again. Why don't you just shout a little louder? Maybe you got to wake him up. Have you checked? Has he got a pulse? Maybe he's dead. Try shouting a little bit more. That could work for him. Or he's yelling out and getting on him. Hey, did you know? Maybe he's just indecisive. He can't make up his mind. He's got FOMO. It's okay. Like, it's all right. Just yell a little bit more. Try again. Did you check his calendar? He could be on vacation. It's the summer. You never know. People are all over the place. Did you guys check it? Or my favorite in here, where it says that he is busy here. When you break down the original Hebrew, Elijah is mocking them, saying that maybe he is in the bathroom. Yeah. Can't get a hold of the storm god because he's got a little storm of his own going on right now, if you know what I mean. Okay? So Elijah is heckling like crazy. And I love, as a fan of sarcasm, that this made it in the Bible. Now, there's a time and place and all that. And the reason it's in here is not, Elijah's not really talking to the prophets. He's talking to the nation of Israel. He's saying, guys, do you see this? You see this, right? Nothing. Maybe he's out. Who knows? This is, this is who you guys worship. Here's your true God. In the bathroom. On vacation. Where is he at? He's making a point to all the nation of Israel that what they're doing, the God they're worshiping, isn't there. The way they've been trying to get their answers isn't working. Verse 30. Elijah gathers the people. Then Elijah said to all of them, come here. They came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob to whom the word of the Lord had come saying, your name shall be Israel. He's reminding them of their history here. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. He dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seas of seed. He arranged the wood and cut the bull into pieces and laid it on the wood. And then he said to them, fill four large jars with water in a drought and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said. And they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered. And they did it a third time. The water ran around the altar and even filled the trench. Once again, God is at a disadvantage here. This thing is soaked, soaked. You, this thing could accidentally light on fire, let alone if they had torches and tossed it on there. It still probably wouldn't light because there is no way under normal circumstances or normal power that this thing is catching on fire. You see where we're going with this? You see where we're going with this? Verse 36. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham... Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all of these at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me. So these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. The entire reason this all happens is summed up in verse 37. 
God has already promised to send the rain. He's already going to end the drought. It's going to happen. We know this all the way back at the beginning. But he causes all of these things to occur for a reason. And that's because this is a redemption story. God is redeeming his people back to himself. This is the God that causes the drought. The God that calls Elijah. The God that faces off against these false gods. And the God that turns the hearts of his people. Verse 38 says, Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trenches. And when the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. And they seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered them there. Things come full circle for those false prophets. The people cried out, the Lord, he is God. Remember what I told you Elijah's name means? The Lord is God. Now, it's not the same breakdown when you do it in the original language, but it is so cool to me that the man whose name means the Lord is God is used by God so that other people will see the power of God and proclaim the Lord is God. Can you imagine this scene all day long nothing 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 450 guys shouting dancing going crazy one man used by God says God just show up reveal your power fire consumes everything leaving no doubt whatsoever that the only response the people can have when they see the power of God on this mountain is to tremble and say, the Lord is God. The Lord is God. Now the whole point of this is not Elijah. He is just the messenger that God uses. But we can tell here that because Elijah made the choice that only Yahweh is God, That God uses him and he is able to lead people back to the relationship with him. See, when we stop limping along and we choose that in every single aspect of our life, be it our finances, our priorities, our families, our passions, our, our work, relationships, our greatest desires in life, when we choose that those things, that it is all about God, That Yahweh will be our greatest desire. That the Lord is God in our life and nothing else. Then we can be used by God to redeem others to him as well. Verse 41. Elijah said to Ahab, go, eat and drink, for there is the sound of a heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Mount Carmel bent down to the ground and put his face between his knees. Go and look toward the sea, he told his servant. And he went up and looked. There's nothing there, he said. Seven times Elijah said, go back. The seventh time the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. 
Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds, and the wind rose, and a heavy rain started falling, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. And the power of the Lord came on Elijah, and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. So what what just happened here? We read at the very beginning of this chapter that God said, the rain is coming, and now it has. I have no idea why God waited until the seventh time to be able to check and see that the rain was coming. But I do know that Elijah still trusted God would send that rain. That every time the servant came down and said, ah, nothing, I got nothing. Elijah said, no, 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 God said it's coming. God told me it's coming. God is faithful. God is going to provide. Go check again, go check again, go check again, go check again. And it rained. And I love the fact that what Elijah does when the rain begins to come, he runs. He runs so fast that he actually outruns Ahab and his chariot. And now he is the one leading the way to Jezreel. Because Elijah can run boldly. There's no limping for him. Because he has chosen to be on God's side. So then what do we do with all these things? What do we do with the story of Elijah versus the prophets of Baal? What do we take home from this? I think there's two things. I think, first of all, it's to stop limping. Stop limping. It is so easy to get caught up in making backup plans for God. God, I am all in, but just in case. God, I'm going to give you everything, but not quite this. God, I want to serve you, and I want to be all about you and what you want, but i got to make sure my things get done, too. God, I want whatever you have for me, but I also want to make sure that I get to do these things one day. It is so easy to make backup plans for God, but stop limping. Choose that the Lord is God and allow him to fill you up so you can tuck your cloak in and just run ahead, leading other people to follow behind you. And then once we've stopped limping, sometimes we have to wait for the rain. Wait for the rain. We talked last week about how God provides according to his will, especially when he asks us to do things that defy logic. God had already chosen that he was going to end this drought, that the rain was coming, and he could have just sent a cloud. There's tons of ways that God could have just ended this drought. So many things that he could have done, but he chose to do it in a way that grabbed people's attention and brought them back to him. God might not be showing up exactly how or exactly when we want him to, but his plan is still better than what we have in mind. And it might just involve using us to redeem somebody else back to him. So then the question we have to go home and answer for ourselves is simply this. Can we look at our life, our passions, our priorities, and see that they proclaim the Lord is God. The Lord is God. Let's pray. Father God, you alone our God. You alone are worthy of worship. You alone are worthy of praise. 
God, may we run boldly, Father, to you and not limp along between two opinions or two thoughts, God. May there be no backup plans, but may we proclaim you. May we serve you, Father, alone. And God, when we go through seasons of droughts, God, help us to wait on the rain, knowing that you are sovereign and in control of all things. And that when you have before us that your plan, God, is so much better, so much more powerful, God. And that it's a plan of redemption that will bring not only us, but those around us back to you. God, may the only thing that we proclaim with our lives be truly that you are God. That you are God. We pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.